Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Can it really be the end of July? I've completely lost track of time. I love getting to do these mailbag pods. I love answering direct questions. We do it as part of the regular Nothing Personal shows with So You Want to Talk to Samson. This is the bonus mailbag pod. We're doing it at the end of every month. You go on Apple. I appreciate your rates, your reviews, five-star rating, review, put a question in, and I'm going to answer. I take the opportunity to answer Evergreen questions, I call them, which means questions that aren't necessarily about today, but sometimes they are. And the first question, I'm going to get right to it. It's such a busy show today. The first question is exactly about what's going on right now, but it was too good not to put in this bonus mailbag pod. Again, I appreciate everyone's loyalty. My name is David, and you have come across nothing personal, the July 2020 mailbag pod. Let's get to it. First question. What would you be doing if you were still president of the Marlins during this time period of the Marlins COVID outbreak? Take us through a day like today. My logistics brain would be in overdrive. What I want to do is take you through the day and what I would be doing today. Today is July I don't know what date it is, July 30th. And the status for the Marlins currently is they had one more positive test yesterday for a total of 18 positive tests. 16 players are positive out of their 33-player traveling party. That's almost half of their roster. So what would happen on a day like today? Well, as president of the team... The first thing I do when I would wake up today is I would check my phone. I would check for any overnight texts or emails, and then I would go to news outlets to get the news of the day. What I'm checking for is to see whether or not anyone in MLB contacted me, whether anyone with the Marlins contacted me, whether or not we had any issues with the team overnight. The issues that I would normally look for in a regular day as president would be player issues or employee issues that were uh, involved police or criminal or any sort of human resources issues. Those are the ones that sometimes come overnight and they would go to the front of my list to deal with first thing in the morning. The way I handle a day as president is I've got short-term, medium-term, and long-term issues always on my plate And I know that the short-term issues have to be taken care of because they are acute and they've got to be taken care of that day. I like to work on midterm issues a little bit every day. And the long-term issues I try to take, if I can, a little bite out of on a daily basis. But those are the ones that get put aside if the short-term issues become overwhelming. And today is a day where the short-term issues 
are guaranteed to become overwhelming, it is unlikely I'd get to any midterm and certainly no long term. So the first call when I'm dealing with the outbreak is to the general manager, the president of baseball operations, because I'm going to want an update as to where we are with our roster. What I would have told our GM or president of baseball ops, in this case, Mike Hill, is he's got to be doing the following two things. One, he's got to be looking to figure out who is taking the field the next time we have a game. The short-term issue that I'm dealing with with Major League Baseball is when the Marlins will be returning to play, recognizing that baseball doesn't have an exact answer, but I would be giving my view of what I wanted. And what I would want is I need the team to quarantine because I want to make sure that the remaining players who have not tested positive do not test positive and are deemed to be in the clear because I need them to play in the major league games once we start again. So they'd be quarantining in Philadelphia where the Marlins are now. I'd be speaking with someone in Philadelphia who's with the team and I'd be making sure that they're getting food, they're getting rest and they're as comfortable as they can be while putting aside the fact that they're not doing any baseball activity at the moment. I would have had a conversation with my baseball people to discuss what kind of delay we would need once quarantine is over in order to get any of the players in Philadelphia back on the field who are COVID negative. I'm taking away for the moment a conversation about the COVID positive people. The COVID negative players, they are now on a break since Sunday. So they haven't done baseball activities Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's, this is the fourth day when I'm recording this show. And I would need to understand what Mike's opinion would be about how long they can go with no baseball activities. And then how many days of baseball activities, how many workouts would they need before it would be safe to put them in a game? A four-day layoff, I would argue, would require one workout, and then we'd be ready for games. If there is no baseball activity for these players for a full week, I believe it would require two workouts before a game. In the meantime, I know that there are players in Jupiter who continue to test positive because we're testing them every day. And I'd be in touch with the Jupiter facility and the minor league coaches and baseball on-field coordinators who are working with those players because we would have told them who we expect to bring from Jupiter to put on the major league roster when the Marlins would have their first game. So what Mike Hill would be doing is building the roster. What the Jupiter coaches would be doing is getting the Jupiter players who are going to be called up. Keep in mind, it's not going to be any of the top prospects because I'm not willing to spend the money that would be required in the future if these prospects are called up now, because that means their service time would start and they'd be closer to arbitration and closer to free agency. So we are going to fill the roster with players we get off waivers, players we can acquire through trades. So there'd be different baseball people scouring the waiver wires because there's a printout that you get every day of which players have been taken off major league rosters. And then we'd be adding players from that list onto our roster. 
I'd be getting a roster breakdown from Mike Hill several times a day where we are on the 40-man roster, the 60-man player pool. I have a piece of paper showing service time of each player. I'd be talking with Mike about contracts that we would sign these players to. They'd all be minimum contracts. I'd be in touch with the CFO acutely today, going through where our payroll will be, given that we will have extra players being paid because we'll have extra players in our pool. Then I would have a flow chart of which players would be taken off the roster once COVID positive players can be allowed back on the roster. I then would be checking my spreadsheet, which would have a list of all the positive players, when their last tests were, whether they were positive or negative, because I'd be keeping track as they go from COVID positive to COVID negative twice during the span of 24 hours, symptom free for 72 hours, and then the appeal process to get them back on the field. So there would be dates on this spreadsheet of when certain things would be able to be happening, knowing that there has to be flexibility. In the meantime, as president of the team, I'm also in touch, not just with people on the finance side, but people on the stadium operations side, because I'm trying to find out, regardless of whether MLB is investigating, I'm investigating, figuring out what went wrong, what protocols we need to do. Then overnight, I would discover that MLB was changing their protocol, but I would have had gotten a memo a couple of days ago, and I would have been working through who our compliance officer would be and getting in touch with him or her to discuss how it's going to work. Then I'm in touch with stadium operations people as I'm thinking about what we can do in the clubhouse to make sure that we can avoid a future outbreak. Then I'm in touch with Don Mattingly and the coaches and Mike Hill talking about different ways that we can interact with players and different best practices we can use to avoid another outbreak. Then I'm in touch with ownership as I'm going through the financial ramifications of what's been happening. And then I'm in touch with Major League Baseball because I will have been told by Major League Baseball that there is a risk that not only are they investigating the Marlins, but they are thinking of not paying the Marlins the way they've agreed to pay the Yankees, the Phillies, and the Orioles for any missed games. I'd be speaking to the commissioner to understand what my position is. I would tell him that if he does not want to pay the players, there's going to be a grievance. And we are going to escrow the money that would have been paid to these players because I believe there's a high risk that MLB would lose that grievance and the Marlins players would have to be paid And I would not allow my CFO or the owners to think that there would be a deduction in any sort of payroll because of these players not being paid for the full 60 games. There'd be calls coming in from owners, Marlins owners, where I'd have to take them through everything that was going on. I likely would be coordinating a daily call to all of the limited partners, as well as the general partner, Bruce Sherman. I would be in touch with Mike Hill, not at specific times, but all the time, about roster and baseball and COVID issues. And then I would think about having lunch. That is literally what I would be doing today if I were still president of the Marlins. It would be a day like no other, which is a lot like it was during my 18 years running a team. You never knew what was going to happen, which is why I would put different lists together of short, medium, and long-term issues And you know, of course, long-term issues eventually become midterm, and those eventually become short-term. 
And that's how you figure out how to allocate your day. That's a good question. It brought me back. I think that from a logistics standpoint, that was always my strength. I guess I would often, if I had to think about my presidency, I would often come out, come off as forward and strong, opinionated, honest, and robotic. But when you're running a team and the Marlins always seem to be in the thick of it, there'd always be something going on. Someone in charge has to be the one who is handling every issue in a calm manner, almost in a robotic manner, making sure that everything gets done. In my own head, though, it was a lot like balancing plates like people you saw in the circus on the top of sticks and keeping those plates spinning because once one plate stops spinning, it falls to the ground and shatters. And I would always be bare feet because shattering plates, I always figured, would cut me. Thank you for that question. Let's go on. Number two. Oh, I like this question. In your young adulthood, I'm not sure what that means, but we'll talk about it. When was the first time you understood that you saw the business world differently from your peers. That's an interesting question because I have to answer that and I want to show hubris, which I have, not an abundance of, but I have. I want to define young adulthood and I want to go back to seventh grade when I was 13. And I'll say that anything post seventh grade is young adulthood. So your question, when I first understood that I saw the business world differently, I can go back to high school. I went to Horace Mann High School in the Bronx in New York. Very competitive high school. Never had the best grades, but I always had, and it's interesting how life turns out. I was always able to navigate the real world. And some people call that street smarts, but I wouldn't say I had street smarts. I wasn't a tough kid. I was always small and scared of my own shadow. But I always had the ability to understand what my strengths were and what my weaknesses were. And I knew very early that my strength was my mouth, but I knew that that strength could get me in trouble, but I also knew that that strength would get me out of trouble. And so when I was young, I was able to use my strength to make money very early on. I think I've told you the story, and, and Mikey, Mikey, who does these mailbags with me, I don't know if I have. Mikey, you've heard the story of being paid not to talk by my parents. So Mikey's saying he hasn't heard that story, and Mikey pays somewhat attention to the stories that we tell. When I was young, I would talk a lot and my parents would have dinner with me and they would pay me to be quiet. And it started off as a dime and I negotiated it up to a quarter and then a dollar because I realized very early that I could collect money for being quiet, get the money and then talk again and I'd have to get paid again. So meals would become double or triple paydays. And I was able to learn early on when my talking was cute and when my talking was annoying. And I realized that cute talking would not get me paid, 
but annoying talking would. So the normal talking of what I was doing during the day, when I would talk about subjects that were interesting to my parents, those would not ring the bell for me because they'd want me to talk about that. Sports was an example of something they would talk about. Politics, art. But when I would talk about nonsense, that would drive them crazy. Movies, TV, things that I knew they did not value, that's when I'd get paid. When I would interrupt what was a purely adult conversation, I actually learned how to speak French because my parents would speak French so that my siblings would not understand what they were talking about at the table when they didn't want us to know. So I made sure that I learned French because I had FOMO before FOMO was ever invented. And FOMO is something that I carry with me all through my life because it's always helped me in business. If you want to be successful in business, you have to know what everyone's doing And if you can't know what they're doing, you have to be able to figure it out. And the process of learning to figure out what people are doing is a skill that I realized I had when I was young that others didn't have. And that was a skill to know exactly what everyone was thinking from a business standpoint. So I have a theory here, and this is a bit personal. My theory is that everyone has 100% ability to learn and understand and predict what people are going to do and what people mean when they say certain things that they say and when they do certain things that they do. You have a hundred percent. Many people are 50-50 business personal. Some people have no understanding of business, but a hundred percent understanding of what's going on personally. I realized early on that I was at best an 80-20 guy that I, of my 100%, 80% of it was used for business and only 20% personally. I spent a lot of time in my life, and it continues to this day, not having any idea what people were thinking personally. And my defense mechanism would just be, I don't care. If you don't like me, you don't like me. If you don't want to be with me, you don't want to be with me. If you say you like me, I'm assuming you do. If you say you like me and don't, then I don't know that. If you say you don't like me, but you do, I'm going to think you don't because I don't have a great ability to discern when people are not being truthful personally. But in business, it was never that way. I had a unique ability to understand when people were being truthful and when they weren't. I had a unique ability to understand where people wanted to get to in a negotiation. And that has always helped me throughout my business career. When you're negotiating with somebody and you know what they want, then you have the power to give it to them. And you have the power to give it to them packaged in a way that they think benefits them because they think they're getting what they want. But the reality is you're getting what you want. You just understand how to package it. Negotiating is just packaging. Business is selling your package for other people to buy and making them believe that they want what is in your package. So as I grew up and got through college and law school and business and Wall Street and baseball, I was always aware that people would perceive me to be the son of the owner in baseball or perceive me to be too young to have a business in France 
around Europe would perceive me as having the wrong degree to work on Wall Street. Why don't I have an MBA? I just have a JD. Would perceive me to think that I was on third base and believe that I hit a triple when they believed that I was born on third base. It never mattered to me what people thought about me, really, in business or personally, because I knew that I had goals from a business standpoint and a personal standpoint, and I wanted to achieve those goals. And the way to achieve it was to get what I wanted. And to get what I wanted, I had to think differently the way than other people were thinking of things. So when I look at a business problem, I take advice from people. I do not surround myself with psychophants. I listen to what they're saying and what they're thinking. And then I do what I want to do based on my view of the business issue, which is somewhat informed by others, either positively or negatively. So often I'll have someone talk to me about something from a business sense. They'll think they're explaining it perfectly and that they understand it. And I will go a different direction because it is my opinion they don't fully understand it. Or I look at it differently and I would rather go my direction than theirs because I believe that my instincts are better. There are examples where others' instincts are better because they know more about a subject. So as an example, when it comes to, I'm trying to think of something in the medical profession, something that I just have no training in, that I have no way of understanding. COVID is a great example. I am not going to give my opinion of the spread of COVID and talk to the COVID compliance officer and say what I think should be done in order to stop an outbreak because I don't know the answer and I don't understand the, the, the virus and I'm not a scientist. So when it comes to science, I'm going to make sure that I've got the best, brightest scientists and I'm going to listen to them almost all the way. When there are implications of what they want to be done for that implicate or change something from the business side, I'm going to present to them why I have a problem with their recommendation, why practically it will not work, and then let them come to me with another answer. And that goes to the end of this question, which is, what do you do when you have an understanding of your business, but you know that there is something that needs to be done <clears throat> that you don't fully understand, except for the fact except for the fact that it will interrupt the way you want to do your business. Well, I've had occasion where I would sit with people who would tell me something that has to be done. This happened a lot in Miami. Let's pretend when I had to issues with the Cuban community after Ozzie Guillen in 2012 came out in favor of Castro. I knew something had to be done, but I counted on people who were in the Cuban com community, people who were Cuban, people who I trusted to tell me what to do about Ozzy. Once they told me what to do, I would then say, listen, I can't have him fired right now, as an example. We can suspend him. Can that work? we can suspend him. What should he do during the days that he's suspended? And they would tell me, here are the 10 community leaders who he needs to meet with. 
And I knew that that would impact us because one of them was a corporate sponsor. So I would say to my advisors, I want Ozzy to meet with this sponsor first. I want Ozzy to meet with all sponsors so we have an opportunity to try to save this business relationship. So I would count on myself to understand the business implications, but I would take the advice of others on the social implications and on the Cuban implications of what was done. I hope I've been able to answer why I saw things differently, how I understood that I saw things differently, and how I applied that from the beginning of my career all the way through today. Thank you for that question. Okay, next question was about Regis Philbin. And I wanted to take this because Regis Philbin just passed away. Will you tell your Regis story of the time he visited the Marlins? I do want to tell a quick Regis story because I'm lucky, but being president of a team, I got an opportunity to meet a lot of celebrities, a lot of actors, a lot of people in the world that I would never have met but for the luck I had and the job I had. I got word that Regis Philbin was coming to a game and I immediately, as I've said on Nothing Personal or maybe on a previous mailbag pod, when the celebrity's coming to a game, I would get notification. If it's a celebrity I want to meet, I would make sure I would meet him or her. If it had been a celebrity I was not interested in meeting, I would make sure that I was busy or I would have someone else take care of that celebrity. So some celebrities I would invite to the owner's suite. Here's sort of the level of celebrity. If it's someone who I really had a crush on, I would make sure that I was the one who met the celebrity when they got to the ballpark, who I took care of in every possible way, and I would cancel all other meetings, and that would be my priority. It's like the Jennifer Aniston story. When she was filming Marley and Me, she and Owen Wilson came to pro player because they filmed during a Marlins game. Of course, we gave permission. And Owen Wilson and Jennifer Aniston arrived separately, and I made sure I was assigned to Jennifer Aniston. So I was told by security and by people in our marketing department the minute she was arriving because there's advance notice. And I went to the parking lot to make sure I was there to open the door and meet her immediately because I wanted to meet Jennifer Aniston and I wanted to spend as much time with her as possible. When Owen Wilson came, someone else took care of that, but I had an opportunity to meet him and that was fine, but I spent more time with Jennifer. Regis Philbin was an example of someone. So there were levels, right? You meet them at the door. You ask them what you can do for them. You make sure that they're going to be comfortable. Then you say, what can I do to help you? By the way, if you'd like to be private, you are more than welcome to come to my office. Regis Philbin was an example of someone who was a tier one celebrity for me. I wanted to meet him and talk to him. And I invited him to my office to pass the time under, of course, the auspices of this way. No one will ever bother you. You can just secrete yourself away in my office. And he came to my office and we would hang out. And I found him to be charming, funny, interesting, and willing to tell stories. And that to me is the best type of celebrity. 
because you want to hear stories. And Regis Philbin had stories about guests on his show, about his life. And I made it and I had him sign a ball for me. And we ran into him again in New York many years later. And he didn't remember me. He remembered going to a Marlins game. He said he remembered me, but I know he didn't because I've done that before. And I'm a level F celebrity, maybe Z. And I'll say, yeah, I remember meeting you. Or I'll say, good to see you again when I see people. Or when someone says, hey, we met at blank day. Of course, I don't remember that. But I would say, I remember that. So Regis did that to me when I ran into him later. He would say he remembered. Now, he did have a jersey, so maybe he did. Maybe he enjoyed throwing out the first pitch. Or maybe he didn't remember at all. But either way, it didn't matter because my story and my narrative is that we made a memory together because it was something I never forgot. And I look at the autographed picture of the two of us and I had it framed. I'll miss you, Regis. 88 years old. It's a hell of a run. Thanks for that question. I was happy to talk about Regis for a minute or two. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com This one, I can't believe someone asked this. Why would you ask this question and ask me to remember this? Someone wants to know, thank you, by the way, you're rating, you're reviewing, you're putting in questions, I'm going to do it. What are my memories of June 27, 2003, the Red Sox-Marlins game played in Boston? Why would you choose a game that is one of the worst games if not the worst of my career. So I was not in Boston at that time because my son was born on June 22nd, 2003, and his bris was going to be on June 29th, 2003. So I was watching that game, and I remember everything about it. I didn't even have to think twice when I read this question. The Marlins at that time, Jack McKeon was our manager. We had fired Torborg and brought him in about a month earlier, late May, mid-May. I actually can't remember, Mikey, the exact day Jack McKeon started. And we had started to play better. We were trying to get back to 500. 
And we go into Boston and the owner was at that game and he was there with family and friends. And I remember that it was important to me that we tried to get a game in Boston because they were a good team and we never did well in Boston or New York, but I knew that it mattered to the owner. Carl Pavano started that game. He did not record an out. Michael Tejera, who is a player that was a 4A player, meaning he was too good to be in AAA and not good enough to be in the major leagues. We would call those players 4A players. We brought Tejera in, and he did not record an out in the first inning. And I remember watching the game in disbelief that we gave up 14 runs in the first inning. 14 runs. Three pitchers. I believe Kevin Olsen replaced Michael Tejera, who had replaced Carl Pavano. We had given up the most runs in our franchise history, and it didn't stop there. The worst part of that game is Kevin Olsen got hit in the head by a a, uh, Todd Walker line drive. He was brought to the hospital. Our owner went to the hospital to check on him. He ended up being okay, but we had to put him on the DL. I remember the Boston starter of that game. I want to say it was BK Kim, but I could be wrong. Now you're really getting back into my memories. I just know we lost the game 25-8, and I remember being annoyed. This is a true story. I never never told Derek Lee this. Derek, if you're listening, or someone who knows Derek. Derek Lee hit a ninth inning. Wait a minute. It may not have been the ninth. I'm not. I have on my iPad. I just have the questions here. I have no notes. I think Derek Lee hit a two-run homer in the ninth inning to make the final score like 25 to 8 instead of 25 to 6. And I remember thinking to myself that this hurts because in arbitration, he's getting padded stats, which is going to cost us money next year. And it's the most meaningless home run of all time to lose 25-6 or 25-8. Mikey, I could have that wrong. But I'm pretty sure I have it right that Derek Lee hit a home run that game. And it was late. I think it was the ninth inning. But that game was the low point of the season. And the reason I remember that game so well is, A, my son had just been born. And it was in between the time of his birth and his bris. But I also know that the next day, we scored. Mike Lowell hit a game-time two-out. I think it was two outs. Three-run home run to tie the score against the Boston Red Sox. And we fought back. I believe we were down in that game seven runs or something, and we fought all the way back. That would have been the June 28th game, Mikey, if you're still on the phone, if you're still checking. I believe Mike Lowell, by the way, Mikey's gone silent. He's doing his best Coke imitation. I believe that Mike Lowell hit a home run to tie the game, and for some reason I we won that game. I know we won it. I don't know whether we won it in the ninth inning or in extra innings. But I remember thinking we have a chance to do something this season because I cannot believe we rebounded from that loss. And the 25-8 to game in June 27th was also known. We had a fight with Boston that game. And 
I was not there and I was upset I wasn't there, not just because I wanted to be there for the team during such a bad loss. I wanted to be there for Kevin Olsen, but I also wanted to be there because whenever there was a benches clearing brawl, I wanted to be in the clubhouse with the manager and with the players after that game. And I know that uh, the manager at the time of the Red Sox was uh, um, John McNamara just passed away yesterday. It was not him. It was uh, uh, Grady Little was the manager of the Red Sox that year. And I think the next year when the Red Sox won the World Series, actually. And they ran up the score in that June 27th game. And I remember that our players were not happy about that. And I spoke to Jack after that game on the phone. And I asked him his view of it, whether or not he would have done the same thing. I remember speaking to Larry Beinfest about that as well. Whether or not we should hit a Red Sox player the next day, which is ironic given what's going on right now. And uh, with with the beaning that happened in Boston. So Mikey's telling me it was a two-run homer in the ninth. So I got, was that Derek Lee on the 27th? That's funny that I have that in my head. I'm not sure why. So in any case, there was a brawl because the Red Sox, as I recall, were adding on in a way. I think they scored. They were, they were tagging up on, on fly balls. And I remember watching that thinking it's absurd, but I'm not sure I wouldn't have done it. Mikey's also telling me the next game we won 10-9. So there it is. So Lowe will hit a home run in that next game to win that game. His home run may have tied the game, but I know we won. And I thought that was a chance that we had to actually win that year. And it started June 27th with that loss where I thought we were finished. And then June 28th with that win, when I thought we actually had a shot. So thanks for asking. You happen to choose a game that is very much permanently in my memory. Okay. Next question. As an executive, were you able to spend time doing the hobbies you enjoy today? Or are you now making up for lost time? And the question doesn't end. But what it means to say is now that you've been fired. (laughs) All right. So I worked really hard as president of the team. There was always a lot going on. I always took pride that I wanted to be the hardest working president because I wanted to prove to everyone that I didn't have the job simply because of nepotism, that it started that way, but it didn't end that way. And when you're running a multi-hundred million dollar business and growing it into a billion dollar business, you have to be good and you have to work hard. But I was always pretty clear that there were things that I did that I love to do that were off the field. And the main one was running and biking and swimming. And the reason I liked those hobbies is that A, it kept me in shape. But more than that, I got a lot of work done during my workouts. So I trained for the Ironman with a friend of mine, and he'll tell you funny stories in 2006 of us taking seven-hour bike rides, training rides, and how I'd have to take phone calls from the owner during training rides. Well, I'd have to take phone calls from Larry Beinfest or other people in the organization or Mike Hill, who was in the organization at that time, how I'd sometimes, if it were too serious, I'd have to pull over, how I'd have to check my phone during a swim workout 
how I'd have to run with my phone because I would take notes while running. Because often during running, I would go through the way I get through long runs. Let's say you're doing a 18 mile run and you've got three hours of running. I would keep track in my head of things that were going on that day. I would think about, I'd have in my head, I'm giving you an insight into my head. I don't know if it interests you, but I'm doing it. My head is broken up into three categories, short-term, mid-term, and long-term. And my head is constantly putting things on a list. And it's not just baseball related. It's also related to what is going on personally, what calls I have to return, what errands I have to do, what I need to accomplish, whether it's professionally or personally. So I'm always putting things in those categories. And during my runs, I would be thinking of new things. And when I thought that something was a long-term issue that I was thinking about during my run, I would have to take note of it. Because if it had been a short-term problem that I had to take care of, that would stay in my brain in the short term. And right after the run, I would take care of it and I would write it down. So I wouldn't stop a run to make a note of a short-term issue, but I would stop a run and take note of a long-term issue that I would think of. Because by definition, the long-term issues are not front of mind during the course of a day. So it wasn't a matter to me of not having the time to do the hobbies I enjoyed because I don't sleep a lot. And there's one line that I'd like to give you that is uh, I try to tell anyone who interviews with me or whenever I'm giving speeches. When your boss asks you to do something, here's the line you never give. I'm sorry. I'm booked up. I don't have time to do that. I'm too busy. I don't have time. When an employee would say that to me, I'd make a mental note that that employee would have no future in my company, in our company, in my business, in our business. I would always give projects to the busiest people because they're the ones getting it done. And you always have time in a day to do anything that you want to do. The difference with many people is their lists of short-term, mid-term, and long-term. People who are not going to be successful in business can't tell the difference between what to do short, mid, and long-term. They put things in the long-term column that belong in the mid-term. They put things in the mid-term that belong in the short-term. And they can't properly discern how long, how long things should be in the short-term. So for me, it's not a matter of not having time to do hobbies because I would make time. Now, granted, I don't need a lot of sleep, but there's always a way to be more efficient and there's always a way to make choices with your time because any time that you spend doing X, you better have decided that you'd rather be doing X than Y. And you better decide that doing X is more important at this current moment than doing Y. You better decide that it is in your best interests to do X right now instead of Y. 
So when you ask me, am I making up for lost time? That is an expression that I am not willing to ever acknowledge that I've ever had to do. I don't ever need to make up for lost time because the time that I've always spent is the time that I've chosen to spend in that particular way. So just think about that for a minute as you're going through the course of your day. Just think about everything you're doing. Is it getting you further toward your goal of that day, of that week, of that month, and of that year? Many people don't think of it that way. They're not interested in whether or not a current moment is getting them toward a goal. But I'm obsessed with it. With nothing personal, I know that I've got to review because I want to. I do reviews of movies and TV shows. So when I'm spending time watching a movie, that is in the furtherance of a goal of having a movie to review on nothing personal. When I am going for a run, that is in furtherance of a goal of getting to the finish line of whatever race I'm training for at that particular time. Or if I'm not training for a race, it's in the goal of staying fit and thin as best as possible as I get older. When I'm spending time on a call with a friend or family member or business associate, or when I'm spending time texting or FaceTiming or emailing, it is in furtherance of a goal to either stay in touch with an old friend, to reach out to someone in need. It is a goal that often is selfish and mostly is selfless. You can have things that are both selfish and selfless. That's what I try to do at all times. When I'm in touch with people, it's selfish because I like being in touch with people. It's selfless because people need help and I want to be their problem solver. That's a hobby that I've done for years, dealing with people's issues, taking care of their logistics. I've never had to make up for any lost time. I'm trying to think. What makes me personally that way? And I think it's probably got to be fear of death, of which I've been scared of my whole life. Some of the great lines, there's a great line in a movie which says, maybe it was in The Departed with Jack Nicholson when he responded to somebody that we're all dying, so act accordingly. So I've always realized that the one thing I can't control, and this is what has always troubled me, the only thing I can't control is time. As a control person, a type A control freak, I've always believed and I've always been somewhat successful in controlling everything else. But time just moves inextricably on. So when I can't control something, I become submissive to that fact. Not submissive to time, submissive to the fact that I can't control it and there's nothing I can do to control it. So what do I do? What do I do? I make sure that there's never a moment of lost time. Because when it comes to your life, 
often it's going to be business. Mostly it's going to be personal, but with time, it's going to be finite. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.